Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mark Boris. Morris Werdegar, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thank you very much, Mark. And uh, and it's good to see you again. Uh, last time I saw you, you and I were having a coffee uh, across the road from my office. You were in Australia. Um, I guess you're out there just drumming up business or telling people what you guys do. And you're back in Australia, so thanks for coming in. Uh, you are an investment partner and chairman of Western Technology Investment, maybe just quickly give us a little thumbnail sketch of what Western Technology Investment does. Uh, thanks, Mark. It's great to be on the show. We are a venture debt firm, and we provide senior secured loans to early and emerging stage venture-backed companies, typically in the technology space. And our capital gives them additional time and runway to execute on their plans in between one venture round and the next. Right. So we're gonna, I'm going to get into a little, bit more, um, a little bit more of the weeds about what that means, because there's a lot of technical stuff in there. A lot of our listeners won't understand, but would like to understand. But I want to go right back with Morris. Uh, how did you find yourself landing at a place like Western Technology Investments? I mean, give me the background of that. Uh, thanks, Mark. We're all former entrepreneurs at our firm. We've all started and run venture-backed companies. And after I completed my own startup, I was looking for a position where I could actually add value into the ecosystem on behalf of being an investor. So I was fortunate to join WTI Western Tech 23 years ago as an associate, right in time to see the dot-com burst and start learning lessons from that period of time in 2001. And it seems to be a pathway for a lot of investment partners or partners of um let's call them venture capital firms. You're not quite a venture capital firm, but those types of organizations who invest in um, startups at different stages, whether it be debt or equity, doesn't really matter. Um, there seems to be the pathway that you've done well in your own startup, perhaps you sold it, made a bit of, bit of coin, and then thought, well, hang on, I wouldn't mind investing in others. Is that is that the pathway? Is that, and is that a typical pathway in the U.S.? I think it is because people that have actually been in a startup can relate to founders themselves and perhaps be able to share some experiences that, that can add value to the entrepreneur, uh, having seen a few pitches, having some game film, if you will. My particular startup was in the restaurant industry, so I picked the wrong industry to go into as an entrepreneur. Well, but I've, I've learned from that as well. So, well, that's, well, that's an interesting one. So when you say um, you invested in the restaurant industry, are you telling me that you're a chef? My wife would say no, 
but thanks for the request. I'm going to tell her that you asked. Uh, I was more interested in the atmosphere and the environment of creating a, the a, a team, a, the experience of a theme restaurant located in California. It was a chain of Tex-Mex Southwestern restaurants. But the style of food was Tex-Mex. It, it was. As opposed to yeah, that being the name of the franchise. Not to get in the weeds on my former restaurant too much, but I, we made great chips and everybody ate them for free. So by the time we took their order, they didn't want to eat anything. So, so it was a great business model. Particularly when it comes to investment partners, uh, I mean, people investing in a startup is the experience of the investment partner, I suppose, just putting money in, be it patient capital or whatever the case may be, the experience of those individuals is important for, in terms of being able to assess whether or not you should invest in the first place or not. But then that then making the assumption you do make the decision, decision to invest. Someone like Morris um, being my investment partner um, in my startup, his experience is really important to me. So what we would call here in Australia bench strength, that's the strength of the bench, you know, that hasn't run onto the field yet, but it's really important because at any time they can run on the field and help you out. So what did you learn from your startup experience? Yeah, thank you. I learned the value of having a very strong board and very committed investors. And I also learned the value of a really solid business model. And I think that as I look forward into the work I've been doing today, what I share with entrepreneurs is that ultimately it's up to you as an entrepreneur. You're the one that's gonna be doing the heavy lifting and the, the hard work. The business model needs to stand on its own. No one's gonna to come to the rescue as an investor or board member ultimately, even though they might be able to offer capital and advice. As a retailer in your startup business, you were interested in the experience of the customer, which quite frankly, is probably one of the most important things for any retailer. It's not about the product, but it's about the experience that the customer has. And that experience, if they don't, if you're running a business and you do not understand what the experience needs to be relative to what customers tell you, as opposed to what you think it should be, how important is your lessons from being in this restaurant chain how important has that been for you in the future? It's absolutely critical. And the reason is that the notion of product market fit goes for me all the way back to those experiences. But even in technology and any business that we're looking at, the question really comes down to how easy is it? Do your, do your customers really want this product? Is it a must have? Do they love it? Is it part of their everyday life? Or is it a nice to have? Is it something that you're sort of pushing? You're using marketing dollars to get into the market. There's a really big difference. And we're trying to find those businesses that innately have something of intrinsic value to their customer. In the US, there's a, I don't know if it still exists, but there was a aggregation podcast platform called Podcast One. And um, Australia, an Australian group got the rights to have this Podcast One technology here in Australia. And that basically what it was is a aggregation platform which aggregated lots of different podcasters and then um, uh, pushed those podcasters onto, it wasn't Spotify in those days, but it was iTunes. It, it, into Apple, it was iTunes though, before Apple took over the name or, or converted the name. And one of the issues they talked about was um, the, and because I know this because I happen to be one of the podcasters on there, but one of the things they kept telling me was, Mark, we can't gather enough, we can't gather, gather data in relation to someone who might be listening to your show, Morris, for example, we can't gather Morris's data because we at Podcast One believe the experience of the customer has to be frictionless. In other words, when Morris signs in a podcast one to listen to all the aggregated podcasts on there. Morris's experience has to be friction-free. In other words, just put your first name. We don't want your email address. We don't want to know what you do. We don't want to know anything about you. Just tell us your name. And they're thinking to me, or they're thinking as they explained to me, was about 
the experience of the consumer, especially a, a new consumer to a new concept, don't make it too hard for them. Make it so easy and so frictionless. How often do you hear, and maybe you use the term yourself, how often do you hear about this friction created, particularly when it comes to technology enabled for consumers? How often and how often do you think about there's a lot of friction at you're gathering too much, you're making it too difficult for someone to come into your website or to your app, uh, your, your, um, your, your app, et cetera? I think you've struck to the very heart of a lot of interesting business questions because really what you're talking about is the notion of a freemium product where perhaps you're offering something in a frictionless free environment to a customer. But then the question is, how do you convert them? What is it that over time creates a business model? How do you create intrinsic value that they actually want to pay for? How do you reel them in, if you will? And I think a lot of businesses struggle with that question. And it's, I think it comes down to the ultimate validity of the product itself. And it's something that we look at because in early and emerging stage technology companies, you can get a lot of false positives by offering a product for free or almost free. And the question ultimately is, will the customer devote resources, engineering resources, real time to integrating into their workflow. And that's something we try to understand. Lots of people have these free products, lots of people using it, et cetera. How do you turn that into, a, as you said, a business model where you, if you're an investor or your WTO is an investor, we want to know that you're going to make some revenue here because we're going to get paid back somehow. I mean, how do you get people to subscribe to you, actually pay you money? What are the sorts of things that, in your experience that have worked for others? Yeah, I'll start by saying with our business, we're typically gonna come into a company that's already proven that paying traction from a revenue producing customer. They've usually started with a cycle of early adopters, which are gonna be friends of that company, maybe other partners that wanna do something for free to get started, alpha customers. But then the question is, how do you convert someone who's trying your product, giving you feedback into a paying customer? And then how do you multiply upon that? And how do you get growth from that? So that's what scale we're up, for. as we would call it. Scale up, as you, as you, as you would <laughs> properly call it. And I think, again, it gets back to the intrinsic value of the product itself. How is it priced and is it adding a value-added service? That's something we try to understand. And beneath that, of course, is also expansion of the product. Most products have an entry point, and then they have added on features that cost more. Maybe your podcast could think of some of those things. Maybe you could sell T-shirts. Uh, and then well, we're also looking at churn. We want to make sure that if someone's begun to pay for a product, that they don't then turn it off later, which would obviously be a very bad sign. Does, does someone like your organization, do you have like a, a matrix uh, that you sort of tick things off or is it just a, an intellectual matrix you have? Yeah, thank you. I think investing is a bit of a black art, more of an intellectual matrix, but starting with our own background that I think we leverage in all of our decisions, it's to actually try to understand the entrepreneur the person behind the company who's running it because that person needs to come to work every day motivated inspired and then inspire that team and i think that that's the x factor in startups at least in the early and emerging stages is a great leader who has a really clear and distinct vision it's something we feel we can understand but beyond that you do need capital and you do need a revenue model that makes sense you do need to understand the competitive landscape and what you're going to be coming up against ultimately. And then there's a lot of other factors too, depending on the industry. Will there be regulatory concerns, other things like that? You uh, mentioned you have to understand the individual. So you guys famously invested, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is you gave the first proper institutional check or money to Facebook. That's correct. We did. Uh, we were very fortunate to have met the company at the beginning. I had worked with Sean Parker when he was at his former company called Plaxo. And in the initial capitalization of Facebook, there were four checks. 
we were the only institutional check. The other three were from Peter Thiel as an individual, Reid Hoffman, and Mark Pincus. Reid Hoffman went on to found LinkedIn. Peter Thiel famously now the Founders Fund, but previously at PayPal, and Mark Pincus of Zynga. So I guess you must have um, had to make an assessment of Zuckerberg. So interestingly enough, no, because my bet was on Sean Parker, who was actually running the company as president in California. He was the first California employee, and he was the bet that we were making. And I really attribute a lot of the early success and traction of Facebook to what Sean did in those very early days before Mark came home, came out to California and took over the company. Is that right? When someone like everybody wants to do a Facebook, I guess, I mean, that's the ultimate for most people in the world. When you're sitting there and you're considering cutting a check to this individual or to this organization, what do you sort of, what, can you remember the vibe? What do you, is it a vibe you get from him or is it specific answers to specific questions he gives you? Can you remember the, the process? Yeah, thank you. I do. I remember it quite well. And it was a bit of both. I, I, there's, there are a few people that you'll meet in your lifetime, if you're lucky, that seem to be able to see further into the future than you can yourself. Sean Parker, for me, was one of those people. And it was the first time in talking with him that I'd ever heard the notion of something called the social graph, which today has become known as a social network. But it was the notion of interconnecting through true identities online, rather than previously, most social networks were actually through false identities. And so this notion of an affinity group moving from the physical world into the virtual world, if you will, was, was, was groundbreaking at the time. And the way Sean talked about it, and we still have the original presentation that Facebook put together, even there, you can kind of see the seeds of what became the company that we know it as today. And it was really quite visionary. And I, I attribute that to someone who had the ability to actually see a little further into the future than I could. Interesting. Um, was Parker, what was his background? Was he like a, a scientist? I mean, because no, this is a science. He, he was a, a college dropout, didn't go to college. He founded Napster famously, along yep. with Sean Fanning previously. Uh, which was the illegal music sharing network, but became very popular. Uh, I think he had another startup. Then he went to Plaxo, which was a company that ultimately, it was a contact database that ended up losing the war to uh, LinkedIn, if you will. And so he had startup genes. He wanted to be a founder. And I think when he encountered Mark Zuckerberg, he saw what was at the time just a very small college network. And I think attributed can be attributed a lot of the vision of how to expand that to Sean's early vision for the company, which is why Mark Zuckerberg hired him. Okay, so Zuckerberg hired him um, to build on the vision that maybe Zuckerberg had himself. That's correct. I'm sure Mark today might have a different view of how all that went down, but there's been some great books written, including uh, um, The Facebook Effect, about the early days of, of Facebook, and I think most people would attribute a lot of the vision in those early days to Sean's influence. I mean, you guys are looking at deals all the time. You're, you're looking at startups, great ideas, Etc. All the time, and f and f you know, for many, many, many years. How often do you? Is it is it a rare thing? I mean, do you know straight away that I'm I'm talking to a Sean Parker? Uh, you know, I like to say that I've had five period five times in my life where I felt I was seeing a truly great company. Three of those times I was right, <laughs> but two of those times I was wrong. So I don't think any of us are perfect, but I do think that you can feel something slightly different from someone that is truly exceptional. Is this learned behavior or is this innate behavior of these particular individuals? Or do they go about things differently? Do they, when you say that it's a visionary, I mean, are they more dreamers? I just got to get my head around it. Yeah, I don't know if there's an exact answer, Mark, but I do think that it has to come from within. And I think that that individual has to have a deep-seated core passion for what they're doing, 
with their life because it's more than a nine to five job. They're going to be inspiring others. They're going to be breaking down walls. And I think in order to become a truly great breakout company, you have to do things that have never been done before. So I don't think that's a learned trait. I think that people can become very good leaders. I think that they can learn how to be good entrepreneurs by a variety of different resources and tactics. But to be one of the best, to become an Elon Musk or to Jeff Bezos or a Mark Zuckerberg or a Sean Parker, I think uh, you're born that way. Do you think it's maybe harder today to be that person because a lot of things have been done? Like if you go back then, that this was a sort of a, a left of field sort of concept and never been thought about before, not really thought about in depth. But a lot of these things have been done now. Um, but it seems that way. Maybe we thought then everything had been done too. Is it less likely to happen for the future because as people have sort of driven into lots of different areas today? I don't know. It just feels like it's harder today. Yeah, I think you're asking, has everything been done and invented? I, I think uh, sort of. I think it, there will be new great companies that none of us have ever heard of in our lifetime that'll achieve market capitalizations and mind share that's equal to or equivalent to some of the companies that we've talked about today. I do think that the AI revolution that is occurring is gonna help generate some of those very big winners. I also think in just space tech, we're gonna see another company besides SpaceX emerge. I don't know which one, but there will be several winners in that space, really truly exceptional breakout unique companies. Uh, so I don't know where they're going to come from, but I believe that the ground's being set. And actually, this pullback in technology, this venture capital pullback, if you will, I think is going to help create those companies because the best companies get born out of more difficult times. Only the best entrepreneurs want to attack during challenging times in the venture capital industry, and they can put together very good engineering teams too because everybody's available. Is it a reasonable assumption to look at someone like Musk? and say, what are the two things apart from everything else he's doing, but what are the two big players that he's playing in now? He's playing in two areas, space tech, SpaceX, and also brain, Neuralink. We hear a lot less about Neuralink, although we just raised a lot of money for it. Is it a, is it a fair thesis that one, a person who has expertise in the particular area or great passion or interest should see that as a proxy for something that they should push down push down hard on and continue be encouraged by the fact that someone like Musk is actually prosecuting that both space and brain yes is the short answer I think so and of course he's working on Tesla and the boring company as well which is the underground tunneling technology company but I think in terms of true impact on humanity you've nailed the two that are most important. And you know, I think it's early days in Neuralink. Of course, there's some controversy associated with the company, but what he's done with SpaceX uh, has, I think, improved humanity's lot by providing resources for people to get access to the internet in difficult situations. Are we experiencing now really some really true genius in new discoveries? And I wanna ask you, have you guys chased anything down in relation to the brain? Yeah, thank you. We're not in any of the companies that are most closely affiliated with Neuralink and some of what Elon is doing. But I I think that you're going to have a convergence of science and AI in a lot of brain-related technologies, uh, therapies, and medical devices. And I think it's going to really improve health for humanity here over the next 20, 10 or 20 years. We're going to see major breakthroughs, both on the drug side, on the medical device side. Uh, perhaps on the mental health side, which could be a combination of the two, 
and uh, everything is poised to converge to the benefit of humanity. You just mentioned an interesting one, mental health, and you wonder, is it just a, is it really a thing or, and I don't know about America, but certainly in Australia, it's talked about all the time. We have a day, once a, there's one day of the year called Are You OK Day dedicated to people's mental health. Is mental health something that will attract a lot of investment by organisations like yours down the track? Because it, it's nearly like I'm, if I if I come up with something, I'm profiting from people's, you know, bad luck or whatever the case may be. I mean, is that something you guys consider? Mental health is a big deal. Yeah, we do. Yeah, I, I think that, and I do think it's a big deal globally. I think that there uh, there are a lot of investable themes around mental health. One of which might fall into the wellness or mindfulness apps, something like a calm or uh, a podcast that's about mindfulness. I think that there are, um, we're an investor in a, a company that's doing breathing studios. So think of a yoga studio, but for mindfulness and breathing. Uh, we're looking at some investments right now that are that are going to be focused on delivering magnetic pulses to the brain, which have scientifically been proven to help elevate mood, actually. And so I think that there will be reimbursable medical device technologies that can help people that are severely stricken. I also think in day-to-day -day life of many of us, there's going to be different things we're going to be willing to pay for that elevate our mood, change our perspective, uh, give us hope, connect us with one another, and make us healthier people. A bit like how Musk has, in, in terms of satellites, has made the world build a convenience for us to ultimately connect with each other via these satellites. What you just talked about there, there then just struck a chord to me, so that if we can help people, assist people by overcoming a mental health issue, whether it be through a device or, or just through some exercise, breathing, et cetera, or just sort of some sort of awareness program, like, you know, like educational program. And you mentioned podcasts, but an educational program. But help people connect with each other. It seems to me there is an underlying theme, connectivity, however it happens through technology. But anything that helps me connect in a technological sense seems like to me an investable venture. Is that is that a part of the is that one of your theses as a WTI that you guys are looking at? It absolutely is. I, I agree completely. I think that humans thrive on affinity groups. Uh, they they like to be around people that share their life experiences. I believe, and I think that what we've read about some of the perhaps negative causes of even depression from Facebook and social networking are true because it's not the true self that's being exhibited on many of these social networks. It's the best self. It's the it's the public presentation of oneself. It's one it's second. The real self. Yeah. Um, I'm aware of a company called My Health Teams, which is not a WTI company, but a very interesting platform for people with different unique and rare disease states to come together and share their experiences, share the research they're going through, communicate with one another. And I would put that as a very positive impact of technology on a particular group of people they're going through and experience together. But I don't think it just has to be disease states. I think that uh, our company, Open, that is doing the mindfulness studio starting in Venice Beach, but also has an app, is allowing people to collectively breathe, take time out, uh, create mental space. And I think that we've all learned in our increasingly busy lives that we, we need that for mental and physical reasons. And at least in the United States, mental health could be a disability now and is characterized as one. And uh, I think... Uh, certainly with the younger kids, high school kids and college kids, it's it's an epidemic. 
I'm involved in a, a university. I'm on the board of a university in the United States, and I would tell you that the the mental health crisis that we've heard about is is very real and under resourced, and that's going to lead to lots of different businesses, perhaps that can provide therapy online through a Zoom chat or uh, other types of technological resources for people that are in need. There's just not enough therapists and counselors to go around. So we have to find new ways to help people. And I think it probably is something that people will pay a modest amount of money for, like as a consumer. It, it is, I don't, I don't want to go down the commercial route, but you can commercialize it. I mean, if, if the offer is valuable enough. And, and thanks for sharing with me the themes that you guys are interested in. Um, that's really cool. I mean, the technology, but mental health space, they're, they're, they're big deals. And, and or, or brain health generally, and mental health is a subset of that. Your investment model, the way you invest, the model of your investment, it's, it's not typical what, what we see here by venture capitalists here in Australia. Thank you. I think we have a really unique approach and intersectionality into the venture ecosystem, but you're right, we're not venture capitalists. We are lending money that's a three-year term note to companies that are, it's not bridge financing, they're companies that are looking to expand, conduct new initiatives, perhaps buy another company or get to break even. And that's in the form of a senior secured note that earns interest perhaps in the 12 to 15% range. And we also get something called a warrant, which is uh, like a stock option, option for ownership in the company. And so our business model uh, has a, a strong cash yield component to it. Right out of the gate, we start getting paid interest back on a monthly basis from the companies that we lend to. So as a prospective investor, you would see that we get into distributions of cash in the early years of our fund's life. But then we also end up with a nice trove of warrants for ownership and companies, hoping that some of those companies will ultimately achieve a significant equity value and that we can participate in that as well. And so we're sort of a debt plus alpha concept. And we sit in the intersection between maybe the mezzanine debt space in the sense that we have senior liens, coupon, we're a lender, and the equity space in that we're looking for alpha, upside, great stories and great companies. And I think what makes us unique and what makes my job so exciting is that we get to wear both hats every day. I think that in venture capital, ultimately, you're in a home run and strikeout business. You're looking for that needle in the haystack that's going to become the breakout company. Uh, in our space, not so much. We can interact with a lot of different companies, generate a really good yield, add value, I think, with the venture debt product, and also participate from their success to the equity side. And and how do investors look at that? Because it's it's you know it's it's a well trodden path and well used um, saying that uh, debt is much cheaper than equity for the investor. Like like I'm sorry for the uh, investee for the proprietor. It's actually cheaper for me to take debt from you than it is for me to offer you equity. But a lot of people get a bit nervous about having to pay interest. So our debt is paid back over a 36-month period. Okay, so and the warrant is, a, is an unattached and separate instrument that we get as part of our deal. And so if you were, as a founder, and I'll comment on a couple other things you said, but as a founder, if you were to borrow money from us, over a three-year period, you would pay it back. It would not convert to equity. But separately, you would have given us an equity warrant that would give us some upside participation in your company that we would hold on to until the day came that you went public and were worth a lot. We do not take personal guarantees. I know some people in Australia ask that question. Uh, we're we're making a, a, a bet entirely on the assets of the company itself. So our liens are on the company, but they're they're not a personal guarantee. And then one thing you did say about just is this a founder friendly product? Does this help founders? The answer is yes, for sure. It allows you to own more of your company. I think that gives you not only higher ownership but more control of your own destiny. And then. 
the right deal for us is one that's also a win for the investors too, though. And we're hoping that the venture capital investors look at this capital when they invite us into a deal as, as helping them by supplementing the capital they've put in, giving the company more time to execute between one round and the next, achieve great milestones. And that's really to the betterment of all three parties, the venture debt lender, the founder, and the, the venture investor. So we're looking for that harmonic triangle. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your um, entry into that particular business might happen post the original venture capitalists so that the venture capitalists don't have to go back to the market and maybe do a down round or whatever, another round and get diluted, but they can come to someone like yourselves and you guys come in with a debt, with a warrant or with an option sitting at the back of it and it allows them to sort of hold on to more of their original equity. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. Uh, just commenting on two deals that we're working on right now. One is a chain of Montessori schools that's doing over $100 million of revenue. Uh, they have cash in the bank. It's a very successful business, and they're borrowing some additional capital from us so they can continue to accelerate their growth and development while raising a big equity round. So that's going to be to the benefit of the founder because he can keep growing his or her business. It'll be to the benefit of the existing investors because they don't have to bridge the company right now. Instead, they can focus on remaining, keeping their reserves for the bigger round that'll be coming at a higher price. And, uh, and another company that we're closing a deal with right now just closed a brand new Series A, $15 million uh, US. It's a very experienced founder. And he is, and we, we tend to work with experienced founders who value partnership. I think we like second, third time founders. This person immediately, this is in the elder care financial space. This person is raising two years of cash. And as an experienced entrepreneur, came and said, We want to have three years of cash. I need to have some additional capital in reserve depending on different initiatives we're going to work on. And if they take off, I don't want to be forced back into the market to raise money prematurely. So we'd like to have a venture, in this case, a venture deadline kind of on at the ready or on cue. We're not funding the loan right away. We're committing to a period of time where this person can draw it, but it becomes a very powerful, impactful insurance policy on top of the equity that they've just raised. And so we're going to be invited in by investors typically because it does help them see their investments prosper and allows them to see more game film before they have to write another check themselves. If you come in after the venture capitalists, for example, or investors, could be both, um, you're giving the entity more runway to prove up what they get, how valuable they can become. It's not prove up a concept because concepts are already proved. They should be already earning income because they can't pay you, your, you can't pay you interest. 
Um, so th- would that be the best way to explain, you know, where you typically would come in? Yeah, we're typically going to come in after after a venture round. Uh, they do pay interest, so they yeah, yeah. they they pay cash interest uh, right away, and they they have to model that into their financial plan. So the question is, does that cost, or does the benefit of the supplemental capital outweigh the cost? And it, it typically does. It actually will normally add six months of additional time to a company's runway. And of course, that means as as lenders and as underwriters, our core belief is the company will be able to raise additional capital in multiple rounds into the future. So that's what we have to underwrite too. When you look at the investment um, profile of the entity you're investing into, are you looking at a new capital round for them to repay you back your original loan? Or are you looking for their own cash flow to allow that to happen. It's the former, and but the, the new equity won't just pay off the debt, they'll just continue to make the monthly payments. New equity doesn't like to come in and just in essence buy out debt, yeah. but we are underwriting to that new equity. Venture back companies still are a couple rounds away from getting the cash flow break even operations. Yep. And that's what enables uh, private firms like ours, I think to have a market that's quite interesting and lucrative because once a company is cash flow break even or cash flow positive, it does become what I would call traditionally bankable. It becomes eligible for a whole set of different types of financial products that are less expensive. And so, you know, we we lean into these companies that are pre-profit and we do bet on supplemental equity rounds coming in to ultimately be the source of repayment. That's critical. Now, of course, if things don't go right, we're also betting that we can work with the entrepreneur to find a home for the company and to be able to help sell the company and to get our capital back that way. Okay, and you mentioned earlier on, because I don't want anyone to think if this is not the case, I don't want anyone to think you're just into technology. You mentioned Montessori. Um, that's not a, sort of probably a little bit of tech in there, but it's mostly a, it's a school system, um, a very success, successful school system in Australia that I know of. Um, do you look at things other than tech? We do. We look at tech-enabled services. We look at healthcare uh, services, medical devices, uh, and, and other things. And I think that the education space, broadly speaking, is becoming more tech enabled, including this chain of Montessori schools that's going to have different curricula that are developed on a platform that can be transported to different markets or uh, used and replicated in different ways. So I'd like to think that even with a, a, an entity like that, that there'll be economies of scale that are tech enabled. We are looking for companies that have venture growth characteristics. Uh, and that are in the venture ecosystem and will attract investors like that. But we do have a a very broad mandate. And then, of course, there's things that we're going to be, I think we're going to focus less on. Uh, There's some interesting venture capital investments that have very binary outcomes where they either win big or they fail completely. I would point to some biotechnology companies in that regard where they might be a great venture investment, but maybe not such a good venture debt investment because of the binary nature of those outcomes. And what's interesting, venture capitalists, the VCs, especially the early stage ones, tend to take a, a view, we'll do 10, maybe two will work. I mean, it's a bit of a portfolio approach. I mean, they're not saying everyone, they want everyone to work, but they also are practical and take the view that, look, we'll invest in 10. I don't know if that's a number, but we'll invest in 10. We expect two to do so well that it'll take account of what we lose in the other eight or whatever we might not make in the other eight. It's exactly right for the venture capital That's ecosystem. what you mean by binary. Yeah, that's what I mean by binary. Yeah. In terms of a portfolio of a venture yeah. capital firm, yeah. you've articulated it well. And then specific to the investment in biotech, uh, if drugs fail in a t- clinical trial, of course, there's really not much residual value for a company like that because of the fact that technology, if you will, the drug itself didn't work. Well, how many countries are you guys operating in? 
Uh, we've done we've done deals in more than a dozen countries. We're active in in uh, in Canada and Europe, primarily in the United States. So, so what are some of the themes you're seeing coming out? Do you mind sharing? We're seeing a new generation of entrepreneur that I would probably characterize as a back to basics entrepreneur, scrappy, uh, doing things very capital efficiently, very focused, trying to achieve a lot even before going to raise their very first round of capital so that uh, they're not too reliant perhaps on even the CD ecosystem. Ironically, early stage valuations are still quite high. There's a lot of money in the world chasing the best new exciting ideas. There, There's no shortage of of capital for entrepreneurs looking for that first round. The big challenge globally though is the second round. It's the round after that. You have to prove so much and in order to earn that series A, which is traditionally really the first institutional round, the bar has never been higher. And so there's gonna be a very high failure rate between seed and A. You can get a lot of false positives of being able to get your, your company funded for the first time by a seed investor but not necessarily going to be able to get much further than that unless you achieve some really big things and look like you're going to become a category-defining important company. So there's a lot to be done in those early stages. AI is everywhere. I think that you don't have to be a dot .AI company necessarily to benefit from AI. I think that we're seeing a lot of generic software companies integrate AI into how they do a variety of different business practices. That's certainly a trend uh, globally. I think that in addition, most companies today are remote first that are startups. They are looking to get the best talent wherever they can globally. They may have a headquarters somewhere, but a lot of the people are going to be working in different time zones in different parts of the world right out of the gate. And I think that allows companies to be able to attract perhaps the best talent. I also think something's lost in that too by not having the in-person corporate culture, but I do think that's the future we're going to be in for a very long time. Can you just remind me how you describe these people, uh, these new entrepreneurs? Are you... I think, well, I probably call them scrappy, yeah. back to basics. What does that mean? What do you mean uh, by you know, that? You know, maybe it's an American that? term, but I, I think uh, I like the concept of a junkyard dog. I like a founder who is going to claw their way to success, who takes nothing for granted, who has to make it happen on their own, has to kind of manufacture their own gains. And there's a lot of elbow grease, blood, sweat, and tears in that statement. But I think in an environment like we have today globally and probably really for the rest of our lives, more challenging, not as easy, equity won't be free. Uh, that's going to be the type of characteristic that makes for a successful founder because I think it's that that's the X factor. It's just not say, never quitting, you know, never giving up, somehow just willing your way through challenges and breaking down walls. And I think you can feel that when you meet someone who has some of those talents and, and some of those uh, characteristics. I, it, it does. As a matter of fact, you seem to be one of those people to me. So maybe you would probably be able to recognize it as well. I find it hard to explain who they are, but who these people are, but they don't take no for an answer. It's um, someone who's not necessarily technically brilliant, but they know to scrap and they get the result anyway. And uh, because I think that we've had a not us, but generally speaking, um, entrepreneurs had a bit of a magic run, especially through the COVID period. It, it seemed like anybody could get evaluation and anybody could get invested in. It just seemed that way to me. But the, that has sort of fallen off, over, that has fallen off the edge. And a lot of the evaluations that a lot of people invested in during that COVID period have come backwards dramatically. Is that something you guys have experienced too? And is there a lesson to be learned out of that? There's several, uh, and we have experienced it, and you're right. I think that there's always been a disconnect in the mind of the entrepreneur and maybe the whole ecosystem between the two words of value and valuation. 
Valuation is really what someone's willing to pay to buy a piece of your company, but that's just an option play themselves. Hmm. Their equity is really just a discounted bet on the future, but it's an uncertain future. Value is what your company is worth if you have to go sell it today. Hmm. And I think that the gap between value and valuation, even though the word sounds similar, got broader and broader peaking in the spring of 2021, as you referenced, to the point where it's really become an encumbrance for those companies that raised extraordinarily high valuations because even a down round is very difficult to achieve. There's a lot of brain ache in bringing in a new investor and repricing around. And and uh, and and I think that most of those companies that are way overvalued will probably fail because they've already lost perhaps their best engineering talent. You know, employees know that their stock options aren't going to be worth much and they just move on. And so you have these almost walking dead shell companies out there that I think over time are all going to trip and it is a bit of a shame, but because I mean, I saw a couple, I saw a few businesses which were just really proof of concept type businesses, and they managed, you know, they had they had nothing going, and um, but they had a good they had a good thesis, uh, it was good, it was, but um, there was no, no, they didn't even have prototypes going, and uh, they were technology based, been in the health sector, um, but they were running off the you know the valuation um, frenzy of people like Canva, et cetera, in Australia. And uh, and the VCs all wanted to get the next Canva. You know, you, you know if you're a VC, you want to have great cred and you want to, because you want to, you want to attract investors into your fund as well. So your great cred is, you know, um, we're going to find the next Canva in Australia for argument's sake, or the next Atlassian. Um, and in your case, the next Facebook. <laughs> um, but, and as a result of that, a lot of new ventures and new businesses was sort of clever, and they wrote off the coattails of those that sentiment. In my opinion, crazy valuations, which it was in twenty twenty one, where the VCs were investing at those valuations, and they were syndicated valuations. It wasn't just one investor with lots of them, but they still don't have a prototype. They still don't have a go to market. And I keep thinking to myself, if you raise ten million, for argument's sake, if I just pick a number, that gets burn pretty quick, um, particularly if you've got a, a really big theme, you know, we're going to be global, um, which a lot of them do. Um, that just means you're going to spend a lot in the early stage. But then if you've got to go back to the market, you could be, get bitterly disappointed, but worse still, your current investors get bitterly, bitterly disappointed because they don't, they're not, the valuation is not increasing and the and VCs have to mark their investment to market. And if, it, if they invested at 10 million and all of a sudden you've got to raise money at five valuation, um, the VCs who invested in the first place are very unhappy. And the new people coming in and saying, well, hang on, why isn't that uh, original investor topping up? And they very rarely will top up on a down round. I've noticed this in Australia. And I know a lot of people still still thinking it was the same as it was in 2020, 2021, which is not. Is this a global phenomenon? It is. And I think... Historically, that down round or that bridge has been proven to be one of the worst investments in venture capital, which is why it's so hard, I think, to get those those checks. The VC ecosystem, back to your example of having a portfolio of 10 companies and two winners, is highly motivated to pile capital upon their successes, but actually to walk away from their companies that are underperforming. And I think that there is actually a real gap, maybe even an opportunity to work with companies that are underperforming and are just below the horizon of venture backable because they may not 
be the next Canva, but they could be a very, very interesting business. But the ecosystem is not wired that way. And so the challenge, if you are one of these companies that's raised at a high valuation, is if you haven't grown into that and attract a new investor, as you were saying, to lead that next round, uh, you're, you're probably out of luck. You may get one inside bridge round toward an exit if you can, if you have your eyes on a potential acquirer to have a small sale. But I think that it's really challenging. And the higher the valuation was, the more aspirational it was relative to perhaps what would be considered more of a market norm in times like this, uh, the more difficult it'll be for the for those companies. And at WTI as a venture lender, valuation is one of the key considerations in our risk assessment that we make of a company. We've always thought it ironic that entrepreneurs, in some cases, brag about a high valuation because really what they're doing uh, to us, at least, is just telling us that we should be more concerned hmm. because that hurdle is even higher for them to be able to cross over into that next round. Uh, it's really hard to get a down round done anywhere. And it you usually will be just the inside investors that are repricing the round, perhaps doing a pay to play and forcing everyone to pass the hat and put in money or else be, be wiped out. Uh, so I think valuation is a whole separate and very interesting conversation. But back to how did this, how did we get here? And how did, how did we get here from 2021? Uh, globally, there are over a thousand seed funds, probably several thousand. And they are all fighting to find that next Canva. They, they must invest. They must invest and they need to be the first check. Yeah, history has proven that you just have to get in early. Uh, unfortunately, though, if you look back at Facebook, the first valuation was 5 million post. Now that was post money. You know, post money. Now that was a while how ago. Much, and they sorry, got very was, far on that first million dollars. They raised six hundred thousand of equity and six hundred thousand of debt. Six million dollars in equity? They raised six hundred thousand of equity and six hundred thousand of debt. Right. Uh, for the first year of their operations. And so, so they were very capital efficient. It was different dollars, but there was no cloud either. They were buying their own servers and hardware, which is what they used our venture debt dollars for. So I think it it is a bit of a lesson to go back to basics to try to raise money to rational valuation, give your investors a win, hopefully pick investors that can add value if you're an entrepreneur, not just the highest bidder, someone who can really bring something to bear, perhaps a relationship, an insight, a partnership, uh, and then and then go about and be scrappy and make that money last a really, really long time before you go back to the market. And I think that's critical. And one of the things that people often forget in the venture cycle is that you need to have six or nine months of cash in the bank when you start raising your next round. So if you've only raised 18 months of capital in the first place, you only have about nine months to execute before you're basically raising money once again. And so it's a very short cycle. And you, you need to be very mindful of valuation as a result of that. There are well-set rules around how you work out the enterprise value of a company. That's a going concern. You know. The it's up there lending money, in my case, or you know, making widgets they're selling and people paying a price and there's a margin and there's overheads and you can work out what the uh, recurrent uh, income is going to be, net income, and you can sort of build out a valuation off the back of that. But when you're not really in that category, not really in that stage, how do people build a valuation? How do you work it out? I think it's a creative writing project, if you will, yeah, for totally. companies before they're generating any revenue. But I think the gotcha to that statement is there is a day where you inflect and as you produce product, begin to have your widget on the market, you will be judged ultimately by financial metrics. And so I think you have to be quite mindful of the fact that transition will occur and leave room for that transition to occur in, in your early stage valuation. The way we look at it is to look at set across a very broad universe of comps of similar companies at similar stages, perhaps doing similar things, 
and what valuations they've raised at initially and then the, what they've gone on to raise at with success, with getting that product to market. And I think that those two lines have to match, if you will, because if your first round valuation is 40 million and then we can see the companies that have achieved everything that you're hoping to do are worth 30 million two years later, that's a mismatch and that's going to cause a lot of stress. And it's one of the things that we, we think deeply about. Again, we think that entrepreneurs that are aspirational in valuation are a major risk factor, not only to us, but to all participants, including their employees and themselves. I, I agree with that. What is the view of organizations like yours as to what's a, you know, you want them to be paid, you don't want them to be going broke because they won't be able to run the business. What's a sort of a fair number for those or, or people to, in those environments? I mean, how do you work it out? Well, I'm glad I'm not on the comp committee for most companies, but I would say that it would have to be a significant discount to their former job. Yeah. I think that for entrepreneurs to be entrepreneurs, they have to be all in. And that, unfortunately for them, means they're going to be eating a lot of noodles and, and cheap food. You have you can't burn investor cash on a high salary for yourself as yep. a founder. I think as companies get much more mature, hundreds of millions of revenue, bringing in professional management, it's a different discussion. But I think in our experience has been that in, in all startups, particularly successful startups, uh, founders are, are getting paid very little. And that I think shows sacrifice. And that's uh, you want to believe that they're focused on the creation of value for their equity as being their core bet rather than, than just uh, getting a salary. So I think it would be a real red herring. It'd be a real problem, I think, for investors if an entrepreneur was fighting hard for a, a, an outsized salary. Why I brought that up is because I, for me, a definition of a scrapper is somebody who's prepared to take a knock on on the salary. I mean, they're they're so they're so bloody committed and tough that if they were earning earning a half million, and I would like to know what they were earning. I would I actually would like to know that. Um, but they're now prepared to work for seventy five thousand a year and work hard. That would be one of the um, indicators to me that this individual is a scrapper. That's right. And I, I think that if they were successful and they can raise a, a new round after that, bigger round, and then perhaps a round after that, they can certainly earn pay increases as, as, they, as they progress. But I, I think they have to be aligned with their investors and equity dollars are very expensive. And the only expense ultimately of equity dollars in an early stage company is to headcount and is to salary. So if that money is being paid to the founder, it means it's not being paid to other employees they might be able to hire. And so I think you have to take that into account as a prospective investor. I would consider it a real red flag. But, but there's no rule of thumb as such as you work with. But you just you, you just going to look at all the indicators. No, but I would say in the United States, at least for a seed stage startup, it would be rare to see someone making more than a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, hundred seems to me to be the right magic number for, for me. I think hundred thousand dollars or something south of that would be the right sort of indicator. And it's irrelevant to what they were earning. You know, because if irrelevant. It's, it's totally irrelevant. And do you hope to see investment by them as well? So do you, do you ever think to yourself, well, hang on a minute, where's your cash in this? I mean, apart from they're taking a down round themselves in terms of wages, do you accept from them that their investment is their time, which they would otherwise get a lot more for, or are you actually looking for cash investment by them as well? I think cash investment is a plus. Even a token cash investment is a plus. Some people don't have those resources. So I think I would overweight just on on a very modest salary, showing to me that they're all That's, in and that they're banking on their equity value, increasing in value, which is aligned with what I would hope as an investor myself. Yeah, so there's a lot of signals that entrepreneurs have got to be able to show. I mean, like you just hit on a number of them, but don't overvalue yourself. Don't come back to go, don't come along to some organization like your organization when you're looking for additional runway and um, 
be too proud of the fact that you got a massive valuation pre this date because that's probably a red flag. Um, make sure you have all the sensibility, but at the same time, characteristics of a scrubber, someone who's committed, passionate, is going to die in a ditch for this particular investment without without fail. There's no, except failure, but there's no sense of failure in these individuals. Don't overvalue yourself. Um, um, and then try and pick new themes which are technology-aided, in other words, to get um, uh, economies. There would be. And I think at the early stage, ultimately, the example of just continuing to peel back the onion, I think an entrepreneur needs to be able to answer, what is it you are trying to do? And that question, you know, if you keep asking the question, hopefully you can actually get deeper and deeper towards the core truth. But in the end, there should really probably only be one or maybe two key objectives of what an entrepreneur is trying to do with that initial stage of capital. You're probably trying to prove one thing, but what is it? Because you can get confused. You can get pulled in a lot of different directions. I think it's tempting to be pulled into different projects. And what we've seen to be the most successful entrepreneurs are maniacally focused on really just one thing. I just need to do this one thing. But if I do that, it opens the door to the next set of opportunities from which we'll pick where to go next. And so we're, we're, that's a sign too, I think, is focus, discipline, clear goals and milestones uh, spread over a time frame, over a calendar, uh, over a cash plan from an entrepreneur, as opposed to we're going to make the world better. We have a lot of different things we're going to do. In terms of let's call it the forecast that you're making. So you're going to say, I'm going to raise, you know, $10 million. Um, I'm going to spend it over the next two years. These are things I'm going to spend it on. I, I, and I get the fact that, um, you know, if you don't come back to the market at uh, one year and nine months, you know, you have to come back to market when based on your runway. But who do you as an organization look to these in these, this business and say, well, hang on, who prepared that uh, forecast? I mean, so if I walk in and say it's been prepared by KBMG or PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, do you take a better view of that or are you just happy if they do it themselves? I would much prefer they do it themselves because I think they need to own it and they need to be able to describe it, defend it, talk about what the different um, dials are that could be changed as they get more data and as they progress. And honestly, if they were spending money on a KPG or someone to do their financial plan and outsourcing that, I would feel if, that they didn't have true ownership of their own of their own business. So we would look at that negatively. It doesn't mean they shouldn't have good financial controls, a part-time accountant, someone doing the books. That's a bad use of a founder's time. But I think in terms of actually owning the projections and where the money's going to be spent, that's got to be right in the CEO's hands. Yeah. And so words, they've got to know the numbers. They better. They, they've got to know. And, uh, and don't get caught out not knowing your numbers. And you can't. You can't handball that across to a big organization or anyone. You cannot, if you're the founder, don't handball it. Sure, someone might help you work out the structure of how a forecast gets put together. I get that. Um, but you could, you got to be responsible for the inputs and the ultimate output, but definitely the inputs. You know, what are the assumptions? Why do you make those assumptions? Um, based on uh, what proxies are out there in the marketplace that allow you to make those assumptions. Because, I mean, I guess people like you drill down really deep into why do you think that um, you, you'll spend uh, you know, $5 million in the example I gave before over the next 12 months. What are you going to spend it on? How do you know that, particular, and if it's all wages, or let's say it's headcount, and we're, you know, we're building something, we're devs, you know, um, how do you know that, that you can buy them at that price? Or if you can buy them price, where are you buying them from? Are they remote or are they here? Um, it's a, so do you go into that, do you expect that level of detail to be known by the um, entrepreneur? Absolutely. I think that the CEO has to understand that. And I think maybe even further, the CEO, founder, 
needs to be able to describe what different signals they'll be looking for to modify their plan because there's an old saying in the in the venture ecosystem that nobody hits their plan hmm. so that plan will change it'll change the day after it's been printed and so the person running the company and it might be a more successful plan but it's going to change and so the person running the company has to have total and complete command of all of the inputs and all of the variables so that they can adjust on the fly really on a weekly basis and the best companies that we work with are adjusting on a weekly basis to the inputs that they're getting from the market, to their own product development cycle, and other things. Do you expect them to change the forecast weekly? Um, though, given the the there's changeability, you know, on a weekly basis. Maybe monthly. I think it depends on the business, but there's no such thing as a, as a set plan, if you will, no. because everything is either ahead or behind plan immediately. And so, I think having that flexibility, the best entrepreneurs are flexible, and that's another th- characteristic that I think we'd be looking for is someone who has the ability to admit where they're wrong or double down where they're right. But in order to do so, you have to have full command of what it is you're trying to do, and that includes the the, the financial plan. Um, last time we met, um, you did mention to me that you sort of favor people who have failed in the past. Just explain that that concept. I I think that entrepreneurs who've had the the humbling experience of giving something their all only to not achieve their ultimate vision come away with a very textured and nuanced perspective on how to approach building their next company and i think that from those experiences you learn the value of the right hires the right team a clear vision uh, a good syndicate of investors uh, the right partners uh, really at all all around and a very rational approach to building that next company. And I think as a result, working with people who've been through that, for me at least, is gratifying because as they come back for the second time, I'd say they've, they're, there's no hubris. The, you know, They're not looking to be on the podium at a famous conference. Instead, they're looking to achieve great things, prove themselves to themselves that they can do it. And I think they become very good stewards of capital, a, a great workplace because of that kind of sense of, of common focus as opposed to the the famous founder waving his or her arms around saying, you know, follow me, I'm, I'm a champion, I'm a hero. Uh, entrepreneurship is hard and it's unfair, just, uh, just like life. And so I think working with people that are coming back and coming back again, I find it to be quite rewarding because those those wartime experiences, if you will, I think are very valuable. That that game film, that that sense of how to how to interact in very difficult and always changing circumstances I, I think is is really helpful. And I think it's far more helpful than anything on their resume, where they went to college, what degrees they have, uh, any of that stuff. It's funny, um, when I got very well known those days, you would you would consider him a venture capitalist, but that, that concept didn't exist. But he was a venture capitalist. He asked me, he said, the second question he ever asked me is, have you ever failed? And uh, my answer to him, which is the truth, no, I hadn't. Um, and he said to me, well, what use are you to me? He said, I'm, I don't know if I really want to invest. And I got the shock of my life. This is in 1999. Um, he did invest, but it went, he went on to explain to me what it meant. And it was exactly what you just said. You know, every model I present will never turn out to be the model in reality. And he wanted to know did I have the strength, character, and fortitude to carry on when all the assumptions change, which they did on numerous occasions. Um, and what it told me is you've got to actually build a rhythm of review. So, you know, I think it's important for an entrepreneur, if they're presenting to people like yourself, present to you the concept of the rhythm of the business. When do they review things? 
I mean, you mentioned things change weekly, but it could be monthly, whatever it is. You've got to have a rhythm. And what, what happens within that rhythm? What are the things you're going to review? You're going to review your purpose, your consumer, you know, like the experience that consumers are expecting, all the things that happen in your rhythm, and like your, your finances, the, your cash flows, your pricing. Your pricing might be too high, might be too low. Um, your, you know, total addressable market, it might have shrunk or a new competitor might have come in, et cetera. So reviewing your rhythm, I, I learned from him as well, was a very important thing and constant communication back. So what do you expect in terms of rhythm for communication back to you guys if you invest in one of these entities? Yeah, I th I'd say at a minimum, uh, a quarterly rhythm of, of and I think it, it forces the discipline of review upon the entrepreneur as well. I think it's a really healthy cadence, like you've said, they're probably doing reviews daily, at least in their own head. But I think uh, in the early days, minimum of quarterly, perhaps monthly type of, of review, and, and everyone has different dashboards, but it's sort of a red light, green light, what's working, what's of concern, uh, where do we need real help? Because I, I think that you need to constantly be doing that gut check to give yourself, to maybe give yourself some perspective on where you should be spending more time. So I think that, that that reporting rhythm is 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 critical. And, and it's very honest too. And your investor wants to know. Don't leave me out in the dark. Yeah, the best way to be able to, the best advice for entrepreneurs if they want to count on their existing investors for more money is to keep them highly informed, yeah. to make them feel as if they're part of it, no surprises, constantly communicate, even if there's some tough news. Yeah, well, my, my, my rhythm was monthly with this particular individual, but he actually put a, a person on my board who was one of his CFOs, so he looked at the financial rhythm of the business because we met, met monthly in a management meeting. But my cadence with him was monthly, you know, five weeks or a bit. And actually, to be honest, it was really good for me. It was very beneficial because it made me sit down and think about what I'm going to talk about. I would remember what I got what I got drilled down on in the previous month and I wouldn't want that experience again. So I made sure I had that ready and correct. And uh, it made me understand my business much better than I've ever done before. And I think, you know, entrepreneurs have got to understand that because call investors, whatever, you become my partner. You're my business partner. I don't care what the word is. You put money into my business. I put time and effort into my business, maybe a bit of money. We're the same. You know, that's your business, putting money in. My business is putting time and effort in and thought process and intellect. We're the same. Same page as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I, I think that that discipline also helps the entrepreneur be mindful of what's important rather than what's urgent. Because the day-to-day -day life of an entrepreneur is there's a lot of urgent requests yeah, and tasks, none of which are strategic, yeah. uh, similar to many CEOs. And I think that, that that reporting cadence does force the the truth of what's important to bubble up. You know, how, how are you reporting on the key objectives that you're setting out to do? Well, Morris, thanks very much for coming in. I really appreciate you you as um, chairman of WTI sharing um, you know, the thesis that you guys operate on. And um, good luck here in Australia. I hope you make some great investments. Yeah, thank you. We're looking at a few, Mark. So thanks very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistants, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.